Okay, let's open up with a word of prayer if we could. Father, we come before you in the name of Jesus Christ, asking that you would guide our discussion this morning, that you would uh, show us from your word the truth, help us to divide it rightly, and Lord, to conform our thinking to the thinking that we see rise from the pages of Scripture. Lord, we delight to come together as the body of Christ. Thank you for the freedom to do so. We don't take it for granted. Lord, we just desire to give you honor and praise this morning during this time. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Okay, this is week number 11 in our study of eschatology. And in the first 10 weeks, we've gone all the way from God calling Abram out of the land of Ur to the end of Joshua's life. And as we went through Joshua in somewhat excruciating detail, right? I think that we could make the conclusion that at least at Joshua's death, all the land had not been possessed. Because he clearly speaks to the people and tells them that God will continue to drive people out of the land, that you need to remain faithful, and that there's still land that needs to be possessed. He says all those things in his farewell address to the people as he's getting ready to die. And then um, we went over to Judges to see that, you know, you have the generation that came out of Egypt that were basically unbelievers, all wound up dying in the desert except for three men, and you assume their families, and that'd be Caleb, Joshua, and Moses. Everybody else dies that was 20 years old and older when they came out of Egypt. So that next generation, which is Joshua's generation, is faithful to God, goes into the land. God keeps his promises. They drive many people out of the nation, out of the land. 31 kings are taken. They take all that land, slaughter all the people, and God is faithful. But we look back to see that God always had a plan that the generation of Joshua would not take all the land. And he did that, Judges says, explicitly, so he could test the next generation. And they failed the test. They were miserable. They forsook God. They went after the strange gods of the lands. And God says, I will not drive the people out before you anymore. That deal is over with because you forsook my covenant. And so they struggle for the next 300 years or so. Joshua died in around 1390 B.C. And for the next 300 years was the time of the judges. And yet, um, you know, we went through the seven cycles that we talked about in the book of Judges where the people would forsake God. Then a judge would come on and lead them back to God. They would repent. And then God would bless them again. And then the cycle would go again. Then they, the next generation would forsake God. And they just went, they did this seven times. Until finally the last judge who came on the scene was Samuel. And when Samuel was organizing the country, 
This is when the people said, we want a king like all the other nations have a king. And God said, you really don't need a king, but I'll let you have a king. And so they anointed King Saul, and then after Saul, David, and after David, Solomon. Those are the only three kings over the consolidated nation of Israel only reigned for 100 years. So you got 300 years of chaos and then 100 years where the nation was reunited, uh, still had a lot of problems. I mean, David's sons rebelled against him. Um, Solomon's sons didn't like each other very much. And so when their dad died, they split the nation into two nations. And you've got the nation of Judah to the south and Israel to the north. Over about 200 years and a bunch of bad kings, Israel ultimately falls to the Assyrians. Another 115 years or so, the southern kingdom stays intact, but ultimately falls to Nebuchadnezzar of the Babylonian Empire. So when that happens, you then have no nation at all of Israel. They're all gone. Now, most of the ones that went from the ten tribes that were in the north of uh, the nation of Israel that Assyria took, you never see from them again. I mean, they still exist. They're still a remnant, but you just don't see them in history again. The southern kingdom, Judah, does return when Cyrus of Persia defeats the Babylonians. He allows the Jews to return. Now, all of that takes place when, when they come back and Zerubbabel rebuilds the temple, there's only about 200 years of scripture left. And then you've got 400 years of silence. So when you get to the time of the end of the Babylonian reign, which is during what Ezekiel wrote, you have very short amount of history left compared to what the Old Testament has already done. And all those minor prophets, Jeremiah, um, Ezekiel, Daniel, and all the minor prophets all write in the last 300 years before God goes silent. So it all happens in a very condensed state. Now, Nebuchadnezzar, it can be confusing. He came against Israel in three different waves. All right, and the first wave was like 605 BC. And that's when Daniel gets taken to Babylon. Okay, not a lot of people go. Basically, uh, Nebuchadnezzar and his dad, Nebuchadnezzar, set up a vassal king in, um, in Israel, in Judah. And that king ultimately rebels against them. So Nebuchadnezzar comes back in 597 B.C. and he takes most of the royal people, all the leaders of the city, all the, that king, everybody takes them, about 10,000 people, back to Babylon. And that in, that's when Ezekiel went to Babylon. Okay, and then ultimately they rebel again and Nebuchadnezzar comes against them in 596 BC and that's the time, took over two years. They siege Jerusalem tear down all the walls, burn everything, tear down the temple completely, everything totally destroyed. 
And it took them two years to get over the walls of Jerusalem. And during that time, as they were doing that siege, they, all the people in the city were starving. They had no food. Um, and so it was, it was a horrendous time. And then when they went over the wall, they killed everybody they could find. A few people escaped, but very few. And if you read the book of Lamentations written by Jeremiah, that's Jeremiah walking through the, the streets of what used to be Jerusalem, looking at the pitiful people that remain. There's very few. Those that are there become cannibals and eat the other people who died because there is no food. They totally decimated the land. And so these people ultimately die of starvation and pestilence and, and uh, wild beasts coming and killing them. Um, and Jeremiah, if you just read the book of Lamentation, is really weeping as he walks through the streets of Jerusalem because he warned them for years and yet they didn't listen to him. Yeah, another interesting touch point in the midst of that, which is the book of Habakkuk, which is sitting right, right. after the Assyrian conquest. Assyria is now falling and Babylon is now rising and Habakkuk is saying, why God are you doing this? And God, literally his answer in Habakkuk is, I am raising them up punish you. Right. So it sits right in the middle of that. It's fascinating if you just read Ezekiel, just read it for what it says, that God raised up Nebuchadnezzar not only to punish the Israelites, but they, they take the Assyrians, then as the Egyptians were on march to the north, they take the Egyptians, then they come down and they take Tyre and Sidon, and took 13 years to take Tyre, but they took it. And then they come on down and they go into Egypt and totally decimate Egypt. So God used Nebuchadnezzar to basically punish all of the known world of that time. I mean, they, they decimate everybody. And that's why in, in the book of Daniel, Daniel talks about uh, Nebuchadnezzar in Babylon being a huge tree that overshadows the whole earth because they took everybody. They owned all that land and God intended to punish the Egyptians because even after Israel became a nation, they kept coming against them. And the same thing for like the sons of Ammon and um, Moab and all these countries that are around Israel are always attacking Israel. So God punishes all of them through the hands of Nebuchadnezzar. It's really fascinating to read. I mean, Nebuchadnezzar was an evil, harsh king. You wonder at the end of his life, did he repent and become a true believer? I think there's some evidence of that in Daniel, but you can't be conclusive. But nevertheless, he hated most of the peoples of the world and totally. As David's taken us through this, one of the things to try to set in your mind is what you see throughout all this eschatology that point in particular, is God is sovereignly lifting up wicked people yeah. by allowing them to do what is precisely the desires of their heart. So what he's doing is he, he takes people and he lets the restraint go. And they do what they want to. The most wicked things, but they all do it according to the decreed will of God. 
Well, and ultimately, the, per- the Persians come and defeat the Babylonians because the Babylonians defeated Israel. That's what God does. He, he raised up Nebuchadnezzar to decimate Israel and then raised up the Persians to decimate Babylon for decimating the Israelites. <laughs> so, yeah. He then turns around and punishes them for doing exactly what they had in their heart, but which was also exactly what God had decreed to be done. Right, right. That tension that we, we live in, well, sovereignty of God and man's will. Well, and there... There you see just how sovereign God is. That he can raise up nations to punish other nations and then ultimately raise up a nation to punish that guy. And he's in total control. He can do whatever he wants to. And he has been through all of history. And if you just read these books, you'll see that. It just falls out naturally. Now, um, when Ezekiel begins to write, obviously we're going to spend our time in Ezekiel. As he begins to write, Ezekiel is in Babylon. He's not in Israel. He's with the people who've been captured and taken to Babylon. He's been there for five years before he starts to give his prophecy. Um, And he says, I'm in the very beginning of Ezekiel, I think the first verse, he says in the 30th year, and what he means is in my 30th year, when I turn 30 years old, Because that's when a priest would start his ministry. Everything up until that point would be training. And then when he turned 30, he'd start his ministry. And that's what Ezekiel did. So he's been there five years. He got captured when he was 25. If you work it all out, Daniel was captured about nine years before Ezekiel. So Daniel was like 16 years old when he got captured by Nebuchadnezzar. And if you read the opening chapters of Daniel, that fits perfectly because he's a youth. He's a teenager. And um, so Daniel goes into captivity at 16, Ezekiel at 25. Ezekiel then begins this prophecy that we look at five years later when he turns 30. Daniel's already been in Babylon for 14 years. So he's already rising up. Um, And Ezekiel begins this prophecy Now, the first 24 chapters of Ezekiel are God naming the sins of Israel and what he's going to do to punish them because of these sins. And it's just over and over and over and over again. He names all the things that they're doing. But for me, the most graphic chapter that says it best is chapter 8 of Ezekiel. Because in this chapter, God takes Ezekiel and he gives him a a vision. Now, yeah, we'll get to that. This is about 300 years after Solomon built this temple. This is the temple that Solomon built. Okay, it's the temple that is still standing. Jerusalem has not been destroyed and Daniel's in a vi- I mean, Ezekiel's in a vision, and this is what God shows him. Uh, I'm not going to go through everything that is here, but the first thing, God wants to show Ezekiel the sins of Israel. So the first thing he shows him is an idol called Jealous. And 
We don't know exactly what the people are doing, but they're committing abominations before this idol. Not only are they worshiping it, they, we don't know what other activities going on, but it was an abomination before God. It's inside the court. And, you know, you have Jerusalem, and then raised up, you've got the outer court, and then the inner court, and then ultimately the temple of God where you've got the holy place and the holy of holies, all of this going up. And as, we, as Daniel goes through this chapter, he goes deeper and deeper and deeper into the temple. And that's kind of what I want to show you. When he first, he saw this idol and then God took him to the wall. And this would be the outer wall of the temple. And there's a hole in the wall. And God tells him, dig through the hole and go inside so you can see what these people are committing in secrecy. So they're hiding themselves. And there's a verse in here where they say, God can't see us here. Now they're in the temple of God. God's presence is still in the temple at this time. And yet they say God can't see what we're doing. And they're just a couple of walls away from it. Crazy people. But nevertheless, they, he digs through the walls. And what Ezekiel sees, help me find this. He sees all these carvings on the walls of the temple. Yeah, um, yeah I want to get beyond that. Um, you'll see that they've carved all kinds of images. It does start in nine. Um, I, so I entered, he dug a hole in the wall in verse eight, and he, in verse 10, so I entered and looked and behold every form of creeping things and beast and detestable things with all the idols of the house of Israel were carved on the wall all around. So these guys have gone in and they've made images of all these detestable animals and creeping things and crawling things and bugs and all that kind of stuff. And they're worshiping these carvings. And you can see they're worshiping it because he says, and I saw 70 elders who had their um, censers in their hand and they're burning incense to these detestable creatures that are on the walls. And so this is what they're worshiping. And notice they're doing it in secret. They're inside the temple area and no one can see what they're doing. And... You see at the end of verse 12 where they say, for they say the Lord does not see us, really. The Lord has forsaken the land. And then God says this three times in what he says in verse 13. He says, yet you will see still greater abomination than these. And the next place where he takes him is just outside of the temple of God. And you've got these women there who are mourning over Tammuz. Now, Tammuz is 
um, a god of the lands. She is the god of vegetation. And so during the summertime, she dies because it's a desert land. And she stays dead through the fall and the winter until spring comes and then there's abundant produce again. And the rains come and you, and you have luscious produce. And so that's the God that they're worshiping and they're weeping because it's during the summertime. And she's gone. And she's no longer there. So now if you think about where these women are, in the temple there was the court of women and then next was the court of men and then next was the court of the priests. So these people, these women are sitting in the court of the priests where they're not permitted to go and they're worshiping an idol. Now to God, that's a greater abomination than what just the people worshiping the the testable creatures that were carved on the walls. So as he goes further in, he's still not to the temple yet, but outside the temple, you have these women who are weeping over this idol. And he says in verse 15, Do you see this, son of man? Yet you will still see greater abominations than these. So it's going to get worse. The further you go into the temple, the worse it gets. And so he continues, and the next place where he goes is into the holy place, which is, um, you know, you got the veil that covered the Holy of Holies, where the Ark of the Covenant and the mercy seat and all that are. This is outside of that, where the tables, the lampstands, the laver for incense, Uh, The showbread, all that stuff is supposed to be here. Well, what you find instead of that is you've got 25 men in there. They turn their back to the Holy of Holies and they bow down and they worship to the east, meaning these guys are worshiping the sun. Their, their, Their God, instead of the one who's just across the veil behind them, is the sun that can peer in through the doors of the temple. And so they're bowing down prostrate to worship the sun in the temple of God. David, did it start Crazy. when you were working your way through that, that that is precisely the first step that Paul described in Romans 1.4? Yeah. yeah, they worship those things that were not gods. Yeah. The first step of three steps that, uh, and here God departs after that first step. And when you look at our society, we're deep in the third step. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> yes, we are. And yes, it, it has been this way a long time. Yeah, it's not, there's nothing new under the sun. It's been this way. You look at what these people are doing. And they're in the literal temple of God where his presence was on the planet. All the privileges he could give directly to humanity. Yeah, right there in the temple. And notice what he says in verse 18 of chapter 8. And this is what will ultimately happen. Therefore, I will deal in wrath. My eye will have no pity, nor will I spare. And though they cry in my ears with a loud voice, yet I will not listen 
to them. God totally forsakes these people. He gives them over to what they want to do. And because of that, this is why Nebuchadnezzar breaches the wall and kills everybody in sight. Because of this abomination. And that is, I believe, while God inspires him, invigorates him, energizes him, whatever you want to say, to tear down the temple. Because it has been so defiled that it is beyond hope. And so tear it down. Because those carvings weren't going to come off the walls. And the only way to make it new is to totally tear it down and have Zerubbabel build a new temple. And that's what God does. And so, no pity. Can you imagine the anger of God turned against you with no mercy, no pity? I, it's just, it's unspeakable. And yet... I'm going to run to Matthew 24, right, and 23, and, and see the passages where that very same Lord incarnate is weeping for these very same yeah very same it is, it's astonishing it really is in the next chapter chapter 9 Ezekiel sees a slaughter and here's the way it goes six men come in with their swords to destroy a seventh man, man comes in with a marking case he goes around and his job is to mark everybody's forehead who groans at the abominations, means who disagrees with the abominations that are being displayed, who is against all this false worship. He's to mark every forehead of those people. All the other people who are unmarked, the six men are to go and kill every one of them in this vision. This is a vision. And so... Ezekiel says in here, there was no one left but me. Meaning, there's not one person in Jerusalem that groaned over these abominations. Every single one of them are evil and given over to this false worship. There's nobody left. Ezekiel says, there's nobody, and he cries out to God, are you going to destroy everybody? And God says, there will be a remnant. And those, that remnant was already in Babylon. That's who becomes the remnant. Because everybody in Jerusalem is basically killed. And so, horrendous. I mean, this is what Nebuchadnezzar's forces did when they finally breached the wall. You can imagine, pent up for two years, throwing stones against the wall until you can build a ramp high enough where you can walk across the wall. That's what they did for two years. These, this army is building this big ramp to be able to go into Jerusalem. And then finally, when they get in, they're going to do what they've been waiting two years to do, and that's kill everybody. And by the way, the people are pitiful because they have had very little food, very little water. They are malnourished. They're dying of... Um, simply malnourishment, and then there's nowhere to put the dead bodies, so you got pestilence everywhere. you got, you know, rats and all of that. And so the city is already decimated, and they come in and they kill everybody that's remaining. So 
I mean, that's no pity. That's no mercy. There are only a very, very few who escape that slaughter. A few of them go back to tell Ezekiel what's happening, and a few are still in the city as Jeremiah walks through the city in Lamentations. Very few, though. Almost none. So, this goes on. The first 24 chapters, this is what it's like. Where God is just saying, here's your sin, here's what I'm going to do. And over and over, giving them illustrations of how he's going to do it. During that time, Ezekiel's wife dies. And God says, put your shoes on, put your hat on, and do not mourn in public. And that is a sign to Israel, those people who are there with Ezekiel in Babylon, that when you hear that Jerusalem has been destroyed, don't weep. Nobody weep for these people because they get what they deserve. Now, the people in Babylon deserve the same thing because they were no better, but God's had mercy on them and allowed them to be captured and taken. And I think the main reason is so that Ezekiel and Daniel and Jeremiah could write what they write because that's part of the remnant that God's preserving and so we could have this record. Yeah, we mentioned last week Paul's passage in Corinthians about how all this is an example for us because if right. you telescope out into the, where you're going to take us three years from now, <laughs> we, we will be right there, but it won't be Israel. Right. It will be the world right. upon Israel and the church. And even in this passage of Ezekiel, we'll see it, not this week, but next week, it is the whole world. It's just a small picture of what's going to happen at the end. It is all the world that's known at this time. Yeah, you mentioned pestilence. I, I always think of you know, grasshoppers. And no, this no. It's the disease of death. Right. The multitude of diseases of death it's like when uh, the bubonic plague hit and they describe London and you've got so many dead bodies, there's no place to put them. Three-fourths of the typical city. Yeah, and so as those bodies decay, you've got pestilence. You've got disease that just runs rampant and kills additional people. That's what this is like. It's worse than COVID-19. Yeah, I mean, you know, during the bubonic plague, three-fourths of the people in London died. 75, yeah, most big cities, 75% of the people died. You know, we, we just don't have that right picture of what happened. Well, the totality of the great influenza in 1918, when it was finally, when it finally just went boom, Right. Now, now think about this. I'll just give you a preview. In the book of Revelation, the first thing that happens is that a fourth of all the people on the planet die immediately. Today, that's over two billion people die just like that. Think about it. And then a little bit later on, a third of what remains, which is another fourth, die. 
Now you got four billion dead people. Four billion dead people all across the planet. That's, that's cataclysmic. So COVID-19 killing less than a million? Four billion. I mean, it's just hard to think about, isn't it? Where are you going to put all those dead bodies? That's right. That's right. And that's one of the horsemen that you see in the apocalypse. One of the horsemen is that pestilence. It's just unspeakable. Okay, now I want to show you something. Through these, hopefully I've got time. I do. I won't be able to show it all to you, but I'll show you some of it. Through these 24 chapters, three times you get a glimpse of the mercy of God and God's ultimate plan. So I want to show you those and I want you to notice the language that's used. Look first in chapter 20 where we were down in verse 33. I just want to read some of this to you and listen to the language of what's written here. 20.33 of Ezekiel. Because this is very, very important. As I live, declares the Lord God, surely with a mighty hand and with an outstretched arm and with wrath poured out, I shall be king over you. I'll bring you out from the peoples and gather you from the lands where you are scattered with a mighty hand and with an outstretched arm and with wrath poured out. And I will bring you into the wilderness of the peoples and there I will enter into judgment with you face to face. As I entered into judgment with your fathers in the wilderness of the land of Egypt, so I will enter into judgment with you, declares the Lord God. I will make you pass under the rod and I will bring you into the bond of the covenant and I will purge you purge from you the rebels and those who transgress against me. Remember that because we'll see that later in Ezekiel where he does exactly this. I'll bring them out of the land where they sojourn, but they will not enter the land of Israel. Thus you will know that I am the Lord. As for you, O house of Israel, thus says the Lord, go serve everyone as idols, but later... You will surely listen to me in my holy name. You will profane no longer with your gifts and with your idols. For on my holy mountain, on the high mountain of Israel, declares the Lord God, there the whole house of Israel, all of them, will serve me in the land. There I will accept them, and there I will seek your contributions and the choices of your gifts with all your holy things." As soothing aroma, I will accept you when I bring you out from the peoples and gather you from the lands where you are scattered, and I will prove myself holy among you in the sight of the nations, and you will know that I am the Lord, and when I bring you into the land of Israel, into the land which I swore to give to your forefathers. Sound familiar? This is everybody that he'll bring from the scattered lands. But notice, I mean, we're 8 
800 years since Joshua died. 800 years. And God is still talking about the land of Israel that he promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. God has not forgotten. This is 800 years after Joshua. That, you, you can't get beyond that. This is Daniel writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit what God told him to write in the midst of all this destruction and God is focused upon the land that he's going to give to the nation of Israel. The land has not gone out of the picture. It's still... And this isn't, Dan, this isn't Ezekiel speaking. This is God speaking. So God hasn't forgotten about the land. So why should... Oh. Yeah. What God has done and what our rightful response should be. This, this is precisely God's way of teaching us that. That, that way of looking at Scripture. Look in chapter 11. It goes way back. But in chapter 11, where we're still talking about destruction and all, down in verse 14. And I'll just read this and then we'll be done. Even though these three men, let me see, am I in the right place? 14, 15. If I were to cause wild beasts to pass through the land and they depopulated it and it became desolate so that no one would pass through it because of the beasts, though these three men in the midst as I live, declares the Lord God, they, I don't think that's right. Sorry, chapter 11 Thank you. Verse, I do this all the time, don't I? Verse 14. Then the word of the Lord came to me saying, Son of man, your brothers, your relatives, your fellow exiles, and the whole house of Israel, all of them are those to whom the inhabitants of Jerusalem have said, Go far from the Lord. The land has been given us as a possession. So they're, they're chasing everybody outside the city of Jerusalem away. Therefore say, thus says the Lord God, though I had removed them far away among the nations, and though I had scattered them among the countries, yet I was a sanctuary for them a little while in the countries where they had gone. Therefore say, thus says the Lord God, I will gather you from the peoples and assemble you out of the countries among which you have been scattered, and I will give you the land of Israel. Israel. When they come there, they will remove all the detestable things and all the, its abominations from it, and I will give them one heart and put a new spirit within them. I will take their heart of stone out of their flesh and give them a heart of flesh so that they may walk in my statutes and keep my ordinances and do them. Then they will be my people and I will be their God. This has not happened in history where God brought all the Israelites back into Israel and they worshipped him in truth. Today they do not worship him in truth. And they were his people and he was their God. Hasn't happened. Nowhere in history can you point to where this happened. Certainly Zerubbabel goes back, builds a temple. There's somewhat of a worship, 
But in the middle of all that, Antiochus comes in, the Egyptians come in. Um, they, they get decimated again. None of this has ever happened. And as we read later in Ezekiel, in Ezekiel chapter, I want to say it's 36, there is this, it says the same thing, but in grander, more glorious terms that is astonishing as you read it. It is New Testament salvation written in the middle of chapter 36 of Ezekiel. It's very clear. And that's what Israel will do in the kingdom of God. When he ushers in the kingdom of God on this planet, Israel will be faithful. Now I'll tell you, we'll see it in living color. All the Israelites come together and then God says, you, not you, you, not you, you, not you. All of them don't enter the land of Israel. The separating of the sheep and the goats that Christ talks about over in Matthew. We'll see it in living color in the book of Ezekiel where he says, not all of you are going to go in. Some of you I'm going to call out. And we'll see which ones those are. So all of this is in the book of Ezekiel. I mean, it's fascinating to read this book. And you ought to. Just start in chapter 1 and just read all the way through to the end. Because what you see there is amazing. And we're going to go through, um, next week we'll go through chapters um, 21 through 34 pretty fast. And then in 34 we're going to slow down. And, cause, and I want to show you, this is just a glimpse. When we get to chapter 34, the land, the Israelite land promised to their forefathers is in full view. That's where they're, that's what where all of what God does in the last half of Ezekiel takes place. So on the, he said it here on the mountain of God, on the plains of Israel, in the land promised to your forefathers. I don't know how more explicit he could be. That this is Ezekiel 800 years later writing about what God's going to do in the future. And we're going to open that up and look at it. Because then as you get to Daniel and you walk through Daniel, you go, oh, that's what Ezekiel was talking about. And it'll make perfect sense. We may go back and do some of Jeremiah, uh, Jeremiah and Isaiah also, just selected passages, because they speak of the same time. But re- realize Ezekiel lives his whole life in Babylonian captivity. He goes in when he's 25, hasn't begun to write. His whole prophecy is bookended by Daniel before and after. Ezekiel only speaks for a few years and it's all in exile in Babylon. That's where all of this is taking place. So you have my notes that I talked from. Um, Anytime you don't get these, if you want them, they're on the website. So we put one out there every week um, in PDF form. So thanks for your attention and your time. We'll pick up here next week if the Lord wills.